Before They Were Beatles, Episode 8, Tragedy and First Recording. This is the story of how one of the thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence and at times just sheer luck. It is a story of beginnings, the story of John, Paul, George and Ringo before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Part 1, January 1958. The Quarrymen continued to increase the number of gigs they played for promoter Charlie McBain, almost becoming his regular house band. They started the year with a January 4th engagement at the new Clubmore Hall. This was soon followed by a series of gigs at the Wilson Hall. At one point, McBain did try to impose a female lead singer on the group, a girl named Pauline, who was with the Darktown Skiffle Group at the time. John and Paul wouldn't hear of it and made their views known to the promoter in no uncertain terms. In late January, the group returned to the cavern for yet another skiffle night appearance. After their last encounter with club owner Alan Sittner, they struck firmly to their skiffle repertoire. Sittner had gone beyond sending notes on stage to bands that broke the playlist rules. He was now fining anyone who played rock numbers by withholding a portion of their meagre wages for each violation. Although the gig passed without incident, the January the 4th date is significant in that it marked Paul McCartney's debut at the cavern. Part 2 February 1958. The next major turning point in the development of the Quarrymen occurred on the 6th of February at a gig at the Wilson Hall in Garston. The evening set was nothing out of the ordinary, and once more among the crowd was Paul's young friend George Harrison, who on this occasion had brought along his guitar. After the gig, George tacked along with the group as they caught the bus home. Paul had been working on John to take a listen to George's prowess on the guitar. I said, I've got a friend who's pretty good. And now that he, was, he had a captive audience at the back of the upper deck of the bus, he persuaded George to try his party piece, a difficult guitar solo called Raunchy. John seemed suitably impressed as much by George's new guitar as by his skill of its owner, but felt George was still too young to join the group. However, he conceded that George could fill in whenever Eric Griffiths was unavailable. The location of this audition is much debated. The back of the bus story is the one most often told by both McCartney and Harrison. However, others placed the audition at a club called The Morgue in late 57, but The Morgue didn't open until March 1958, by which time the Quarrymen rehearsals had switched to the Harrison household on occasion, which suggests that George was already a member of the group by then. Part 3, March 1958. Perhaps one of the most pivotal events in the musical growth of John Lennon and Paul McCartney was the March 2nd showing of the ATV variety show Sunday Night at the London Palladium. For the special guest artist was Buddy Holly and the Crickets, newly arrived in England and at the start of a countrywide tour. 
Among the TV audience was John, who gaped at Buddy's Fender Stratocaster guitar, the first he'd ever seen. Many years later, John would tell a fan that seeing the sheer number of sounds that Holly could produce from just three chords convinced John that he too could possibly write music. Paul would later say that he acquired his technical info as a rock and roll guitar player by watching Buddy's performance and studying how he performed Peggy Sue. The Holly influence was not restricted to just a TV show. From March the 20th, Buddy Holly and the Crickets arrived in Liverpool for two shows at the Philharmonic Hall, and among the audience were Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Paul recalls, We loved his, Holly's, vocal sound, and we loved his guitar playing and the fact he wrote his own stuff. That's what turned us on. John was also entranced by this singer who wore his glasses on stage. Suddenly it was hip to be a rocker and wear spectacles. John started to feel less self-conscious and began to occasionally wear his thick black glasses on stage and off. In fact, John became so enamoured of Buddy Holly and the Crickets that he wrote a fan letter to cricket drummer Jerry Allison's mother asking how Jerry and Buddy had formed the Crickets and asking advice on, an, on how his own band could break through in the way that Jerry's band had. Around this time, the Quarrymen made an abortive attempt to break into local TV, going for an audition at the ABC TV studios in Manchester, 35 miles away. The exact date isn't recorded and they didn't get through the audition although both Colin and Eric recall the journey and their shock at finding out just how expensive train tickets were. The first successful move for the Quarrymen away from the circuit of halls managed by Charlie McBain came in mid-March with the opening of the previously mentioned new club, The Morgue. The Morgue was owned and operated by local teenager Alan Caldwell in the cellar of an old semi-derelict Victorian house at 25 Oak Hill Broad Green. Caldwell had aspirations to be a big rock star and his parents not only supported his dreams but actively encouraged them. In fact his mother even acted as his agent under the name Downbeat Promotions. Caldwell saw the need for a purpose-built venue for the growing number of Liverpool bands, one that wasn't owned and operated by the traditional dancehall promoters who didn't really understand what rock and roll was about. The Quarrymen were one of the groups invited to play on the March 13th opening night. Also among the acts was a solo singer called Paul Rogers, whose path would intersect with the Beatles in later years. For Paul Rogers was in fact Paul Murphy, who eventually moved to Hamburg as the A&R manager for Polydor Records, and it was Murphy who eventually purchased the Beatles' early Hamburg tapes. The group played at least two more gigs at the morgue before it was closed down by the police in early April due to overcrowding and lack of proper facilities, such as restrooms and fire escapes. Over the course of these gigs, a rare McCartney-Harrison composition, in spite of all the danger, was added to the group's repertoire, even though George wasn't a full member of the group yet. Also introduced around this time was a McCartney-penned instrumental called Cat's Walk.
Over this period, George's standing gigs became more frequent until it reached the point that Eric Griffiths was effectively frozen out of the group. In yet another display of poor interpersonal relationships, Eric found out the hard way. A rehearsal was underway at the McCartney home, which Eric hadn't been informed of. When word reached him, he telephoned to find out what was happening, only to be bluntly told that the quarrymen no longer required his services. Once again, to avoid any confrontation, John had persuaded Eric's best friend Colin that he should be the one to break the news. The quarrymen lineup was now John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Len Gary, and Colin Hanton. Part 4, June 1958. The period between George joining the quarrymen in late March and the end of June 1958 appears to have been one of little activity. No noticeable gigs or incidents have ever been documented to cover this period. And in fact, for most of the year, the group was dormant and returned to playing the occasional party or wedding. By the end of June, they were auditioning for new dance club promoters, including one at the Lowlands Club, Hyman's Green, West Derby, where they failed to secure any bookings. And it was probably during this lull in the group's activity that George began his first serious relationship. He'd fallen for a bright and wildly attractive girl named Ruth Morrison, and George's relationship with Ruth would take on a pivotal role in the development of the group in the next 12 months. Part 5, July 1958. The events of 15th of July 1958 would scar the psyche of the Quarrymen's leader for the rest of his life. The tragedy that befell John Lennon that day would shape his behaviour for the rest of his adult life and to a large extent influence the cynical approach to life that would forever mark him as the cheeky one. Quarrymen's recently departed manager Nigel Wally called around to John's home at Mendips to talk to John, but John was out at his mother's house. As it turned out, Nigel found John's mother Julia was actually at Mendips talking to her sister and John's guardian Mimi. Engaged in casual conversation, Nigel walked Julia part of the way home along Men Love Avenue. They parted and Julia crossed the road straight into the path of a car and was killed instantly. Her body was taken to Sefton General Hospital and the 17-year-old John was at her house in Bloomfield Road with her common-law husband John Dykins when the police arrived to break the news. The car was driven by an off-duty policeman who John always swore was drunk, although that was never raised at the time, and who, despite Nigel Wally's eyewitness account, was acquitted. The shocked and distressed Nigel left Liverpool shortly after the court case. John retracted into a world of silence during the court case, knowing that he'd been, he'd been abandoned for the last time. To quote John, I lost her twice. Once as a five-year-old, when I moved in with my auntie, and again when she physically died. Half of what I say is meaningless But I say it just to reach you too Prophetically, a few months earlier, John had remarked to Paul about his behaviour and asked, how can you act so normal with your mother dead? If anything like that happened to me, I'd go off my head. And he kept good his promise. There was no limit to his anger and grief. He became meaner than ever and kept himself in a pain-killing stupor of alcohol. His moves became violent and aggressive. Everyone started to back away from him. 
Shortly before the tragic accident, Paul and John had experimented with collaborating on another form of creative expression. They'd started work on a play called Pilchard, which Paul later described as, quote, a sort of precursor to Life of Brian, the Monty Python movie, about a working class weirdo who is always upstairs praying. It was a down market second coming. We had to give it up because we couldn't actually work how it went, or even how you filled the pages. Part 6, August 1958. In early August, the quarrymen lost longtime member Len Gary when he was diagnosed with tubercular meningitis and hospitalised. This effectively curtailed his time with the band, and by the time he'd left hospital, the quarrymen had moved on to new songs and new venues. During the hiatus that followed the death of John's mother, Paul took an increasing leadership role in the group and its development. Over the summer months of the school vacation period, Paul had noticed a sign outside a house that advertised Philips Recording Studio. He assumed that it was in some way connected with the Phillips Record Company, and eventually plucked up the courage to investigate further, and discovered in fact that the studio was an amateur one owned and operated by a retired railway worker, Percy Phillips. Paul inquired about the cost of cutting a demo, and when he found out that it would be less than one pound, he booked a session for the quarrymen without consulting the rest of the group. On the appointed Saturday afternoon, Paul arrived with John Lennon, George Harrison, Colin Hanton and John Lowe. John Lowe was another school friend of Paul's from the Liverpool Institute who Paul had brought along because he could, quote, play a piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. They were shown into the studio in the back room of Philip's house and did a quick sound check on the one and only microphone present. And despite the number of Lennon and McCartney tunes now available, they chose to start with a familiar song, Buddy Holly's That'll Be The Day. Day. 
When it came to deciding on a B-side, John was still feeling less than enthusiastic about things and didn't put forward any of his own compositions. Thus it was that the first original Beatles tune ever recorded was not, as you'd expect, a Lennon and McCartney tune, but the McCartney-Harrison composition, in spite of all the danger. of this regular quarryman stage now has started to run long and Percy Phillips started to wave frantically at them as the recording equipment neared its end. The result was what must be the rarest Beatles recording in existence, an acetate single for which they paid a grand total of 17 shillings and sixpence. 
The single was passed from person to person over the next few weeks and months, eventually passing to John Lowe, who held onto it for many years, Lowe eventually selling the acetate to Paul in the 1980s for an undisclosed sum. Both John Lowe and Colin Hansen recall that the session was recorded direct onto the acetate, as the cost to have a master tape made would have added an additional two shillings and sixpence to the cost. John Lennon, however, recalls that he returned to Philip's studio to obtain another pressing, and was dismayed to, to discover that, quote, our stuff had been wiped off the master tape by some country and western singer. Part 7, September 1958. Other than their foray into the amateur recording studio, the quarrymen remained dormant for most of 1958. Paul and George would occasionally treat their classmates to impromptu performances of Long Tall Sally, accompanied by a school friend, Dan Andrews. Their only other regular venue became the canteen at Liverpool College of Art. Paul and George would sneak over from the institute next door, often eating their lunch sat with John and Stuart Sutcliffe. Paul has said that he often learnt more from these lunchtime sessions than he did at school, as the art college crowd introduced him to a world of poetry, beatniks and the bohemian lifestyle. At the time, Paul and George seemed to resent John's artsy pretensions and his close relationship with Stuart, almost as if Stuart was getting between them and John, diluting the strength they had developed as a trio. Given their young age, this subliminal anger would often surface in cutting remarks and put-downs. Personal attentions aside, the major attraction in sneaking over to the college was the opportunity to play. John, Paul and George would hold impromptu jam sessions on the canteen stage or in room 21, where the majority of John's classes were conducted. Here they would draw a small regular audience who listened to John run through his buddy Holly numbers while Paul practiced his little Richard impersonations, or they would try their harmonies on an Everly Brothers tune. But the ever-growing collection of original songs was kept hidden away from this early audience. Among the audience was John's classmate and future wife, Cynthia Powell. Cynthia had developed an interest in John and noticed a distinct change in him when he played. Quote, his glasses were often relaxed as he sang, all the anger and malice on his face was gone. Cynthia Powell was transfixed by the John Lennon that emerged from the tough shell. She saw into the hurt, helpless little boy underneath the rageful pose. Part 8, December 1958. As the year drew to a close, a new small coffee bar opened at 23 Slater Street, close to the art college. Ex-plumber and wannabe club owner Alan Williams had been walking down the road and saw a Felice sign above Owen's watch repair. The thought occurred to him that he could draw a lot of people if he opened a coffee bar. Originally, Williams wanted to call the bar the Samurai, but his friend Bill Coward had just read a book called The Jacaranda Tree and suggested a new name, The Jacaranda Coffee Bar. At one point, there was a sign on the building at 23 Slater Street that says it opened in 1957, which is incorrect, and also erroneously claimed it was the place that the Fab Four first played and the accompanying artwork depicts the Beatles, including Ringo, in full Sgt. Pepper costume. Although it's true that John, Paul, George and Ringo all played the Jack, they never did as members of the same group. The early clientele was mixed, attorneys, doctors, art students and musicians. The ground floor had a large glass window looking out on the street, and there were small padded benches and coffee tables, a tiny kitchen and an outside toilet for the gents. A false trellis ceiling was installed from which fish nets and coloured glass balls were hung, Steps led down to the basement where the bands played and a small flight of stairs led up to the ladies' room. Alan Williams recalls that the Jack, as it soon became known, resembled a stale, tired waiting room in a railway station during the day, but livened up in the evenings. Coffee clubs were sprouting up all over Britain's cities and Liverpool was no exception. What set the Liverpool clubs apart was the fact that instead of having a jukebox, they often featured live music from local bands. The original house band at the Jacaranda was the All Steel Caribbean Band with a lineup comprising Alan Williams' friends Lord Woodbine and his group Everett, Otto and Slim.
Local photographer Chenston K. Rowland recalls that during the day the clients were businessmen, reporters and staff from local offices, but nighttime was another story. Liverpool's youth became the customers. They were attracted to the club because Williams would let rock and roll groups perform in the basement of the coffee bar, and as a result, the Jack became the meeting place for rock groups. According to one source, towards the end of 1958, some or all of the quarrymen played a few gigs under the name The Rainbows. However, no evidence has yet come to light to verify this. However, the name The Rainbows occasionally surfaces in various stories about the early days of the Beatles in Liverpool, so it can't be totally discounted. In at least one early interview, Paul also mentions that they once played under the name The Rainbows as, quote, we all had different colour shirts and we couldn't afford any others. Although the Quarrymen actually hadn't performed in front of an audience for the majority of the previous six months, the Lennon and McCartney songwriting team was still as productive as ever. Over the winter of 1958 and into early 1959, they penned numbers such as When I'm 64, Love of the Love, I'll Be On My Way, and A World Without Love. When I get older, my hair, many years from now, will you still be sending me Valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine. Till quarter to three, would you lock the door? Will you soon need me? Will you soon beat me? When I'm 64, all together. When I'm 64, more time. When I'm 64. In our next episode, we move on to 1959 and we catch up with Ringo while the quarrymen go through some more changes leading up to the next big break. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you'd like to leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Quarrymen, In Spite of All the Danger, Quarrymen 58, Raunchy, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, Peggy Sue, John Lennon, Julia, the Quarrymen's first recording, That'll Be The Day. The Quarrymen's first recording, In Spite Of All The Danger. The Trinidad Steel Band, Steel Meringue from 1957. And Paul McCartney playing on the piano at his childhood home, When I'm 64. You can find full versions of the music heard in this episode on the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel, for which I'll add a link in the show notes. If you'd like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrid Entertainment, a division of 4Js Group, LLC.